Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Today is the sixth day of Hanukkah, and I'd like to share with you about the story of Hanukkah and how it fits into what is revealed about Messiah in the Brit Hadashah. So if you look at John chapter 10, this is really a fascinating account because it comes on the heels of Yeshua's encounter with the Jewish people in the temple during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so when you look at chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, they all fit into the same time frame. Shortly after the Feast of Tabernacles, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, you had the lighting of these huge menorahs in the temple compound. Can't talk about that this morning. Just not enough time, but you just need to know these menorahs would be lit And then as we get into John chapter 8, Yeshua makes the claim that I am the light of the world. Then when you get into John chapter 9, we're given the story of the miracle whereby Yeshua heals a man who had been blind since birth. And then when you get into John chapter 10, we read the story of Hanukkah. It always was surprising to me, especially years ago when I used to speak at all kinds of churches, when I, sp- when I used to work with Chosen People Ministries. And I'd get out to churches and pastors would ask me, would you come and teach us a little bit about Hanukkah? And the reason why I say it was always somewhat surprising to me was because Hanukkah is a Jewish festival about which a lot of P- Jewish people know a good deal. Perhaps Passover, not so much, except the Jewish people coming out of Egypt. Yom Kippur and the, and the Feast of First Fruits, perhaps not so much. But Hanukkah, Jewish people know a good deal about. The irony is that Hanukkah is not spoken about in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's not found in the Old Testament Scriptures, at least not as an historical event. The history of Hanukkah is recorded in the book of Maccabees, 1st Maccabees, part of the apocryphal book in the Catholic Church. But that book is an old book written around the 2nd century, 1st, 2nd centuries or so. But Hanukkah is nowhere spoken of historically in the Old Testament. But it is spoken about prophetically as Daniel looks down the corridors of time, is given a vision and sees the events which would become Hanukkah. For us, we look back toward it. But from Daniel's perspective, he looked forward toward it. But on the other hand, in the New Testament, we have a very clear reference to Hanukkah. And not tucked away in one of the obscure books 
of the, of the New Testament, like the book of Jude, or maybe the book of Titus, but it's right there in the Gospel of John. And it's not anywhere in the Gospel of John. It's right in this significant section where he speaks about himself as being the good shepherd and also being the light of the world. So look at this passage with me. In John chapter 10, verse 22, it says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. The word Hanukkah means dedication. And so the Feast of the Dedication is the festival of Hanukkah. Now, in order to understand and appreciate what's going on here in John chapter 10, you need to know some things about Hanukkah. You need to understand three major themes associated with Hanukkah from a Jewish perspective. On the one hand, there is the theme of the messianic hope, the hope that Messiah would come. I want to share with you why it is that they had this particular theme rise to the occasion on Hanukkah. Not only is the Messianic hope a major theme of Hanukkah in the Jewish tradition, but also the theme of miracles. That's why we like the menorah, because there is an eight-day miracle. I don't mean the seven-branch menorah that we light every week, but I mean the Hanukkah menorah, which is an eight-branch menorah, plus the one notable candle called the Shamas. It denotes and reminds us of an eight-day miracle alleged to have happened during this season. But in actuality, the lighting of the candles is not meant just to remind us of that eight-day miracle, but it's meant to remind us of all the miracles God has done for Israel throughout all of her history. So there's the theme of messianic hope. There's the theme of miracles. And then, of course, because Hanukkah is the feast of the dedication, there is the theme of dedication. The rabbis were always concerned that when we dealt with certain themes about the festival, that they become personalized. And so dedication is not just the rededicating of the temple, but the rededicating of our lives. And so dedication moves from the objects in the temple that needed to be dedicated to our own selves that need to be dedicated to the Lord and to his service. So how did these three themes of messianic hope, miracles, and that of dedication emerge? And you need to remember that because there is this little spot, spot quiz that will occur at the end of this presentation. So you've got the theme, what did we say? The theme of? Dedication. Dedication. Messianic, messianic hope. Miracles. miracles. Different order, but we'll... We'll take it, but that's going to confuse me now, you see. But if you look at Daniel chapter 8, if you'd like to look there, you can, but it's a fascinating image and vision that Daniel is given. It's not only given in Daniel chapter 8, but it's reiterated in Daniel chapter 11. These two sections of the book of Daniel go together. And Daniel sees a vision. He's in Susa, which is later to be named Shushan, which is the capital of the Persian Empire. It is in Shushan that Esther will call for the people to fast because of an anti-Semite by the name of Haman, or Haman in the Jewish tradition, that will be opposing the Jewish people. It's in the same city of Shushan. It's also from this city of Shushan that Nehemiah will come forth to return to the land of Israel and to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. 
Daniel finds himself in the capital city in Persia, and he tells us that there he began to see some things before his eyes. He wasn't sure if he was sleeping or awake. It was a vision that was given to him. In that vision, he first sees a ram. The ram is coming from, in, as you look forward here, consider the map of Israel. I'm the land of Israel. And so this ram is coming from the east, the land of Babylon, the land of Iraq. Persia is the land of Iran today. You know, Iran changed its name from Persia to Iran in 1932. So as you look east, you come to Persia. And what Daniel sees, remember, he's living at the time of the Babylonian Empire. So he is in Shushan. He's transformed, transferred to the city, the capital city of Persia, while he himself is in Babylon. And while in Persia, modern-day Iran, he sees this ram that comes from the east, comes from Persia. And this ram has two horns on its head. One horn is bigger than the other. And the horn that's bigger than the smaller horn or the shorter horn comes up last. So he sees the horns on this ram grow. He sees a horn come up. Then he sees another horn, and that horn that comes up is bigger than the first horn. Everybody with me? And he sees the ram move toward the west, toward the north, and toward the south. From Persia's perspective, when he moves west, he moves into Babylon. The Persians will destroy Babylon. Remember, Daniel is in Babylonia, and Daniel is in service to the king of Babylon. So he's got a very important message to convey. He's telling him that the Persians are going to move and they're going to come east to destroy, or west, to destroy Babylon. They'll move north to destroy Assyria and the empire to the north of Israel. And they'll move south to take over the land of Egypt. In other words, the Persian empire is going to expand from west, east to west. But he also tells us not only that this is the Persian Empire, but because there are two horns that come up, he actually sees this empire as an alliance of two nations, the Medes and the Persians. Now, you might be thinking, Gary, how do you know all this? How can this be so sure? But if you read further in Daniel chapter 8, you'll see that Gabriel, the angel that appears to Mary, as well as to Zechariah, and presumably to Joseph, The same angel appears to Daniel, and what I'm telling you is what Daniel is told by the angel. So the interpretation of the images is given to Daniel, and thereby given to us. And so he sees this media Persian empire arise from the west. Daniel is so specific because he's telling us it had two horns, two entities to this empire, this alliance of the Persians and the Medes. What's also interesting is that he tells us that the later horn grows up second and is greater than the first horn. It's interesting because the Babylonian Empire was brought down by the Median entity of the Persian Empire. But over time, it is not the Medes that acquire power and strength, but the Persians. So that in 536, it's Cyrus, the Persian, who takes over in leading this Persian Empire. 
So this alliance, we know this by history, was an alliance of the Medes and the Persians, but the Persians will come up later and they will take control of this media Persian empire. Everybody with me? Daniel sees precisely what had transpired in history and he sees it some 50, 60 years before it actually occurs. But as this ram is moving toward the west and taking over, he then sees another interesting, another interesting sight. He sees in the west a he-goat. And the he-goat that he sees has a notable horn. And the he-goat with the notable horn runs toward the ram. And it says that when the ram run, that he-goat runs toward the ram, his feet were not touching the ground. It's an image of speed, that he's moving with such swiftness, it's as if his feet are not touching the ground. He runs towards the ram, they clash, and the he-goat destroys, tramples, steps on the ram, and destroys it. Gabriel tells Daniel that is the Greece, Greek empire that will arise on the throne of history and will destroy the Persian empire. That will take place some 130 years after the Persian Empire rises to power. So that in 330, Alexander the Great rises to power to take control of all the city-states in Macedonia and in the area of Greece, Macedonia and Thrace. So as the he-goat comes from the east, the west, and tramples on the ram. You know, Alexander did that over three battles within a 10-year period. Unprecedented. Alexander is such an incredible character. You know, he was tutored by Aristotle, who was the student of Plato, who was the student of Socrates. Alexander was the son of Philip of Macedon, after whom the name of the city of Philippi was so named. This is an incredible individual with an amazing legacy and background. And in such a swift period of time, within a 10-year span, he takes over the then-known world. He's about 30 years old when he's at the height of his power. He expanded his empire from Macedonia all the way through the land of Israel, all the way up through North Africa, all the way through the Babylonians, the Persians, even into India. And he was knocking on the doors of China when his men were going to mutiny on him, which forced him to retreat. It says in Daniel that at the height of his power, the great horn was broken off. And when Daniel, or I should say when Alexander was most powerful, with all of his youth and wisdom and authority at about 30 years of age, he dies in a drunken stupor. And at his downfall, his empire is not given to a descendant or given to one individual, but rather as Daniel sees when the horn is broken off, he sees four horns that come up in its place. So that Alexander's empire was divided among his four generals. And so Lysimachus took control of what would be today Greece and Macedonia. And Cassander took control of what would be that area of Asia Minor, Turkey, and that area today. Seleucid had taken control of the area of the northern part of Alexander's empire, which would be Syria to the north of Israel and parts of Babylonia. 
and Ptolemy took control of the southern portion of Alexander's empire in Egypt. The story of Hanukkah concerns the descendants of Seleucus in the north and Ptolemy in the south. Everybody following? And so the Seleucids, the descendants of Seleucus was called Seleucids. They were Greco-Syrian individuals or a Greco-Syrian nation. And as they begin to gain power, they're looking to take control of the breadbasket of the Middle East, which is Egypt. And so they're constantly at war with the Ptolemies in the south. So over a period of about 100, 200 years, this conflict goes on and on until about 170 years before the time of Jesus. Around 170 years, a Seleucid general rises to authority. His name is Antiochus. Because he gains all the power that the northern entity of Alexander's empire provided, he gets rather prideful and he surnames himself Epiphanes, which means the glorious one. You know, in certain Christian traditions, they celebrate Epiphany. It means when Messiah is glorified, during his birth, the glorification, he comes into the world. So Antiochus named himself Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the glorious one. Because of his deeds towards Israel and the Jewish people, the Jewish people renamed him. We renamed him not Antiochus Epiphanes, but Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. And so around 170 years before the time of Messiah, Antiochus moves his troops south through Israel into the Sinai Peninsula, camps his armies there, ready to do battle with the Ptolemies. As his armies are encamped and the Ptolemaean forces are opposed to him, a Roman messenger comes out from the crowd. Antiochus was surprised. What are the Romans doing here? And as this Roman messenger comes forth to Antiochus, he asks Antiochus what his intentions are with regard to the Ptolemaeans. Antiochus was not going to divulge his plans and thereby see his battle plans ruined. And so he just would not respond, at which point the Roman messenger drew his sword. And in the sand, he drew a circle around Antiochus. And he told him he had until he moved out of that circle to tell Rome what his intentions are. Rome had made a secret alliance with the Ptolemaeans. That's why later the story of Cleopatra and Mark Antony and all that begins to unfold is because the Ptolemies made an alliance with Rome, the up-and-coming empire. And so now when the Roman messenger greets Antiochus, Antiochus realizes he cannot wage war against both the Egyptians and the Romans. He must retreat. But when he retreats, he's not happy about this. And so he takes out his anger and revenge upon the Jewish people. As he moves his troops back from the Sinai north to Syria, he comes through the land of Israel. Daniel sees all of this in great detail in both chapters 8 and 11. And as he moves through the land of Israel, he begins to pillage and destroy the Jewish people. He marches into Jerusalem, and the first thing he does is he sacrifices a pig to the god Zeus on the holy altar, thereby desecrating it. He then sets up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. 
And by setting up a statue of a false god in the Holy of Holies, he creates what's made reference to as the abomination that makes desolate. This would also have implications for events in the end times because Daniel is told what he sees is for the future, but not just only the immediate future or this near future, but also the distant future, the time of the end. And so the events that unfold have sort of like a symbolic reference, a dual reference. They refer to Antiochus Epiphanes, but also to the final world ruler who Messiah will conquer when he returns. But that's for another story. Antiochus now has desecrated the temple, and then he moves his troops throughout the land of Israel in an attempt to get the Jewish people to embrace all of this Hellenistic ways, these ways of worshiping the Greek gods and embracing Greek culture and tradition. At one point, he moves his troops about 20 miles northwest from the city of Jerusalem out toward the Mediterranean coast. He goes to a, his troops go to a town known as Modin. And in Modin, as in each of the villages, they would call out the different elders. And they would have the elders sacrifice a pig to the god Zeus. When they came to the town of Modin and they called out the elder, his name was Mattathias. And they commanded Mattathias to sacrifice a pig to the god Zeus. But Mattathias was a righteous man who would not do this. And rather, he and his sons and those along with him had rebelled against this Greco-Syrian presence. They fought against them. They killed these men. And they pushed the Syrians out of the village of Modin. This began a sort of a guerrilla warfare revolt by the Jews against the Greco-Syrian army. Those that revolted were referred to as Maccabees. The word Maccabee means hammer, as they would hammer away a little bit at a little bit at a time against the Greco-Syrian forces. Daniel in chapter 11 is told that the people that know their God will do exploits and be victorious. That's in Daniel 11. There's a lot of complicated things. We can't look at all the details here, but check it out and you'll see. It's one of the reasons why many liberal scholars are aghast at this book because it has such great detail. And if it was written 600 years before Messiah, its details are quite extraordinary. And we can't get into all of that this morning either. But that's another interesting facet of this account. But over a seven-year period, the Maccabees would hammer away at the Greco-Syrian forces and eventually push them out of the land of Israel. And when they pushed them out of the land of Israel, they then were able to come back into Jerusalem. When they come back into Jerusalem, they are faced with a desecrated temple and a desecrated altar. What were they to do with these desecrated items? They determined that they would rededicate them Back to God. That's the, one of the themes of Hanukkah, rededication. So the first thing they did was to decide what do we do with the altar upon which this, these unclean animals were sacrificed. We're told the rabbis decided they would dismantle the altar stones, stone by stone, store them in a secret place until the Messiah comes. That's where the Messianic hope comes in. Until the Messiah comes who would tell us what to do with the altar stones. So while they're rededicating the altar and the temple back to God, they're also looking forward to the coming of Messiah to tell them what to do with the altar stones. As they entered into the temple, 
the temple which was separated by the Holy of Holies and the holy place, they then had to begin to rededicate the items in the temple. And what was particularly notable was the dedication of the holy menorah. The seventh branch menorah that was always on the left side of the holy place when you entered in to the holy place. You had the seven branch menorah. You had in the center the, the altar of incense. And you had on the right the table of showbread with 12 loaves of bread that would be changed every day. Representing God's provision among his people. The altar of incense representing the prayers of his people and the, the menorah representing the very presence of God in their midst. The menorah in the holy place had been extinguished and it was to be kept perpetually lit. It never was to go out. That's why in synagogues you have what's referred to as the ner tamid, the eternal flame, because the flame over the ark that, hell, whole, that houses the Torah scrolls is reminiscent of the seven-branched menorah that was to be kept perpetually lit in the holy place as well. But this menorah was extinguished. And by this point in Israel's history, you couldn't just relight the menorah with any kind of oil. You had to use oil that was manufactured according to the Levitical tradition because this was a holy object that was to be used for the worship of God. So as they searched the temple compound, at least as the story is told, They found a cruise of oil that would last one day, but they needed cruises of oil that would last eight days so that they can keep the menorah lit in order to manufacture the oil according to their tradition. So they had a choice to make. Do they wait seven days and then light the menorah and then they would have enough oil manufactured to keep the the menorah lit? Or do they light the menorah? If it goes out, it goes out, and then we'll wait another six days in order to manufacture the oil properly. The rabbis decided that we've got the menorah, we've got the place, let's dedicate it to God, and let's light the menorah. They lit the menorah, and the seven-branch menorah, by way of tradition, we don't know if this actually happened or not, but by way of tradition, the menorah stayed lit for eight days, enabling the priests to produce the oil according to their tradition to keep the menorah lit. And that's why we have the theme of miracles. So there are the three themes. The hope of Messiah, what do we do with the altar stones? The rededication of the temple, even as they ask about the altar stones and as they rededicate the temple back to God, and miracles because the menorah stayed lit for eight days. And that's why we have an eight-branch menorah. Eat branch symbolizes the eight-day miracle, and the unique candle represents the shamus, the servant candle that lights all the other candles. The rabbis tell us that when we light the menorah, we're not permitted to gain any benefit from the menorah. You're not to read by its light. You're not to try to warm yourself if it's cold. You're not to try to cook if you were able to do that. Rather, the menorah was only something to stare at, something to look at. Because what you're to think about is as the flame miraculously, sort of, hovers over the candles, you're to think of the miracle that God had performed by enabling the menorah to stay lit. But not just the menorah staying lit for eight days, but rather we're to think of all the different miracles that God has performed throughout our history to sustain his people. So this is a festival in which we are to think about the miracles of God. And so let me say the blessing 
and then we'll light the menorah. And then, oh, you know what? Let me do this. Let me make the connection with the Brit Hadashah, light the menorah, and then we can sing and rejoice over. Okay? That sounds better. So those are the themes. Now, if you look with me very carefully, very quickly, John chapter 10. It's always so neat to see these connections and then see how they reappear in what transpires in the New Testament. Because the New Testament's a Jewish book, right? Written by Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah in the land of the Jewish people, the land of Israel, in which they are celebrating Jewish festivals. We need to have an understanding, whether we're Jews or non-Jews, about the Jewish traditions here if we're going to understand the Word of God. Because it's a Jewish book. And I know some of you might think, or others might think, who might be hearing this, well, that's easy for you to say. You're Jewish. Of course you think that way. But let me tell you something. If the Messiah was Chinese, I'd want to know Mandarin. And I'd want to know Chinese history. And I'd want to know everything I could about the Chinese people, the Chinese culture, and the land of China. It just so happens that he didn't come from China. But if he did, that's what I would want to know doesn't matter to me whether I'm Jewish or not. I want to know about him. And in order to know about him, I need to know about his people and his background and his traditions and his history and his uh, whole cultural context in which he lived. And you could fill in any culture. It doesn't matter to me who he was, how he came, whatever it is, I want to know it. And so I don't say this with any kind of, uh, you know, embarrassment or apology. We need to understand his Jewish roots if you want to understand him as fully as you can. And that's just a choice we have to make. doesn't mean you'll be saved more, but you'll understand more. It doesn't mean you'll have the Holy Spirit more, but you'll appreciate what the Bible teaches more. There's no question about that. And if we can even get to the original language, you'll understand even more. Of course, you'll also be more confused, but you'll, you'll also be more enlightened. It always comes with the territory. The more you know, the less you know, right? So here we are in John chapter 10. So let's just take a look at this really quick. At the time, the Feast of the Dedication. What feast is that? Hanukkah. And look at this. It took place at Jerusalem. Where does the events of Hanukkah take place? Jerusalem. And look at this. It was winter. You know, Hanukkah is celebrated the 25th of Kislev, which is equivalent to the 25th of December. So is there a connection between Hanukkah and the birth of Messiah? Well, I may be alone in this, but I think so. And I think so because the greatest miracle of all is to be celebrated when we celebrate the festival of miracles, Hanukkah. Could it have been that the early believers, when they celebrated Hanukkah and thought about the miracles God performed for his people in days of old and for our fathers, is it possible that the miracle they particularly thought about is Messiah came into our world? that he was born in Bethlehem, that he gave his life a ransom for many, would that not be the greatest miracle of all that we could ever see? The coming of Messiah, the death of Messiah, the resurrection of Messiah, the ascension of Messiah, and having the hope of his soon return? It makes a whole lot of sense to me. That's what I think. And so I think the reason for these connections is because that's when these things can be reflected on And that's when these things may very well have happened. In any case, that's for another day. But Yeshua, look at this. He was walking where? In the temple. Isn't that what we're rededicating? And not just anywhere in the temple. He's in the Solomon's porch where we're to teach on certain things. You get the impression that John does not want us to miss the connection. He can't make it any clearer. 
Then they say, look, it's Hanukkah, he's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple, he's in Solomon's porch, and it's also winter. You know, the next thing he'd say is, and we were playing with dreidels, we had potato pancakes. You know, he'd be saying it all because he doesn't want us to miss what's going on. Now, look what happens. The Jewish people ask, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, you have to be impressed by that because there aren't too many places in the New Testament where he's ever asked that question. It seems to be the number one question, you know, okay, Messiah, Yeshua, if you're the Messiah, would you just tell us, tell us. Very few places is that ever asked. The high priest says, I adjure you by the living God, if you are the Messiah, uh, you know, to say so. And he says, yes, I am. And when you think of the Samaritan woman, she says, I know that when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. And Yeshua says, I who speak to you am he. Very few places. Another place, he'll say, uh, who do the others say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you. And now we have it here again, where they say, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. I have to say, very often, people do not, people oftentimes blame Messiah for not believing in him. They say, well, if you'd only tell me plainly, I believe you'd only show me, if you'd only answer my prayers, if you'd only do this. But we have to ask, what prompted them to ask the question, are you the Messiah? And I think it is, it's Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is a time when we hope the Messiah would come. Because when he comes, he'll tell us what to do with the altar stones. And so here, Messiah is in our midst. And they say, tell us plainly, what do we do with these altar stones? Make it clear so that we know. And this is an opportunity for you to do so. And look what Yeshua says. I have told you plainly, the miracles that I do testify of me. Isn't that interesting? He draws our attention to miracles. He's saying this is a season of miracles. Reflect on the miracles I have done and you will see that I am the Messiah. The problem is not that I haven't spoken clearly. The problem is you have not observed carefully. You've not observed reflectively. You haven't thought deeply enough about what you are seeing in my midst. And then he says, but the reason you don't believe is because you are not of my sheep. For my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They are dedicated to following God. As I thought about following, and I'll wrap this up here. As I thought about following, we're called to follow Messiah, right? Messiah calls the disciples, follow me. And everyone, everyone throughout scripture that follows God is transformed and changed. Think about this. Abel follows God. He offers up the first fruits of his flock. Enoch follows God. He walks with him. He is taken because he is no longer. Noah follows God. He builds an ark. Abraham follows God. He leaves his family, goes to a place God would call him, and he offers up his son. Isaac follows God, and he blesses his people. Jacob follows God. He blesses his descendants and particularly blesses his Josephs. Joseph follows God. He gives them the instructions, take my bones out of here when God delivers you. This whole sense of faith and expectation, they're blessing because they're anticipating God's going to do something. They're following him. They're being transformed, and they're believing. Moses follows God. He takes the people out of Egypt. Joshua follows God. He 
delivers them into the promised land. David follows God and he expands the promise. The prophets follow God and they reveal his will. The the disciples of Yeshua follow God and look what Peter does. 3,000 come to faith. Paul follows God and he is the one who plants all these congregations. So here's the question. If you're following God, what is God's intention for you and are you following him to see that it comes to fruition? I mean, that's an amazing thing. My sheep hear my voice. They follow me. And in following me, there must be results. There's got to be a change in life, a change in character. And there must be an expansion of his kingdom. Remember what Yeshua said. I came to give life and to give it more abundantly. He came that we would bear fruit, much fruit, and much more fruit, he says in John chapter 15. So when he says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me, we have to ask ourselves, to what degree are we really dedicated to God to follow him, to follow him so that our life is changed, to follow him so that his kingdom is expanded, to follow him, to see him work in marvelous and miraculous ways. That's what I've always wanted throughout my entire life life of living with the Lord, and I can't say it's always been every moment. I have to rededicate my life to God periodically, even as we all do. So in these closing moments, and I apologize for the time I've taken, but in these closing moments, let's light the menorah. We're going to sing a couple of more songs in praise to God and in glorification of him. And as we light the menorah, remember, we watch to reflect on miracles. And as you reflect on the miracles God has done, the chiefest of bin Messiah has come into our world to provide us with redemption and will come again to provide final restoration. Think about... Think about what it means for you personally. And what God would do and would, what he would do in your life. You know, so often I always think, what does God want to do? And I think about it, then I say, this is it. And then I ask God to bless it. But really what we need to be finding out is, what does God want? Because whatever he wants, he's already blessed. In other words, he's already at work. We need to join him. Rather than thinking of what we would like and then ask God, really bless this. But we want to find and be, have this sense of conviction. This is where God's going. This is what God's doing, and I want to be a part of that, and I want to join him where he's already at work. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.